verses 41 through 16 and 34 through 38. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Place the ark of the covenant law in it and shield the ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstands and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the, ta of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings, and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar, and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him, and consecrate him, so he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father, so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites, during all their travels. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, your Bible could easily be nothing but words on a page for us. But if your Holy Spirit brings those words alive in our hearts and minds we will hear from you. And we ask that that would happen today. Amen. So today we're reaching the end of our study in the Old Testament book of Exodus. And Exodus ends with this account of the construction of the tabernacle, which was kind of a, like a portable temple that God instructed his people to make. And if you ever just sit down and, and read Exodus from start to finish in, in one reading, you'll probably notice that more space in this book is devoted to the description of the tabernacle than, than really any other topic or event. So there's more about the tabernacle than the plagues in Egypt or the crossing of the Red Sea or the Passover or the Ten Commandments. Most of it 13 out of 40 chapters in, in the book of Exodus, a third of the book is dealing with the tabernacle and the priests who serve there. So you could make the case, I think, that the tabernacle really is 
the main focus of the book of Exodus. And uh, they kind of ask, well, why is it so important? Well, the reason the tabernacle is so important because it, it was the dwelling place of God among his people. In other words, the, the tabernacle, that was the place where God revealed himself to them, where he, he revealed his glory, he revealed his character, he revealed his nature. That's where God revealed to the people who he is. So what did God reveal? Or what does, you could say it this way, what does the tabernacle teach us about God? I, I just want to point out a few things that I, I think we learn about God um, from this description of this ancient tent, this ancient portable temple, all right? And one thing is this. The tabernacle teaches us that God is beautiful. God is beautiful. So everything, everything about the tabernacle was, was intended to be beautiful, just um, aesthetically um, amazing. It would just dazzle you with its beauty. Millions and millions, millions of dollars of gold and silver and, and precious jewels were went into this, along with this, the most costly linen and, and fabric, uh, rare kinds of wood, the, the, the costliest of materials. And all of it was crafted by the most skilled artisans in their nation, following very, very elaborate designs. And the purpose of this was the tabernacle. The tabernacle really was, it was the most beautiful object in ancient Israel. And at the time, remember, they're in the desert. Have you ever been to a desert? Not very beautiful, right? Just drab, brown, dry. Can you imagine what it was like in the midst of all this drab, brown, dry landscape? This dazzling, brilliant beauty of the tabernacle. It was, it was the center of beauty for their nation. Why? Because God is beautiful. Please hear that. God is beautiful. And what I mean is that God is not just morally good. He is. But God is experientially good. If you know God, there is a delight to God. There's something so deeply, richly satisfying and, and joy-giving to, to God. And, and this, listen, this is contrary to what a lot of people think. You may have friends that if you say to them, hey, do you mind if we talk about God for a while? Listen, their first thought is, talk about God, how boring. I mean, how irrelevant, how just, you know, how tedious. All right, you want to talk about God. But here's what they don't realize if you're thinking that way. The Bible, the Bible describes God as so satisfyingly beautiful that to know God and see God would transform your entire life. He is, God is the, listen, what are you searching for? God is the one thing your heart has always longed for. Whether you know it or not, God is that one thing. The psalmist, is it Psalm 16? Says, Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy. God is beautiful. Now, um, if you ever read the Gospel of John, John chapter 13 through 17, there's this long section of teaching called, it's often referred to as the upper room discourse. And these are the teachings that Jesus gave to his disciples 
during the Last Supper. And if you ever read the, the, Jesus' teaching there, you, you see how the disciples, they keep interrupting him. He's trying to teach them. You know, it's the day before his death. They keep interrupting, and every time they interrupt with a question or a comment, it just sounds so stupid. Everything they say is dumb, and he has to correct them. They say something, he corrects them. They say something, he corrects them. But in the middle of this discourse, one of the disciples, Philip, in, in John chapter 14, he says something, and Jesus does not correct him. Now, Jesus says some things that add some theological depth to, to Philip's observation, but he, the one thing Philip says, Jesus just lets it stand. And you know why? Because Philip was right. He, what he said was true. You know what Philip said? John 14, verse 8, Philip said this. He said, Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. If, if God, God, if you just, Jesus, if you just allow us to see God just for a second, that'll be enough. We won't need anything more. Uh, medieval theologians used to um, often discuss a concept that in English you would call it the beatific vision. That they talked a lot about that. And what they were talking about, they were wondering, what will it what will it be like for the souls of redeemed believers that first second in heaven when we behold the glory of God? What will it be like? And have you ever wondered like that? What will it be like to see the glory of God? Well, Philip tells us what it will be like. It will be enough. In other words, it will be so Deeply, richly, personally, satisfying, fulfilling. It will be enough. You won't need anything more. And, and, and no matter what disappointments or letdowns or heartbreaks you might have experienced in this life, it won't matter anymore. Just, just seeing God will be enough. That means you get to heaven, you will not find anyone at all up there standing around saying, this is great. This would be, this would be perfect. I would be satisfied for the rest of eternity if only I could have been a homeowner in my earthly life, right? Or if this would be perfect if only I could have conceived a child. Or this would be perfect if only my father would have apologized to our family for what he did, but he didn't. So it's, listen, guys, there will be no if onlys in heaven. At the first service, I got an amen to that. Let me try again. There will be no if-onlys in heaven. Those, listen, those who are blessed enough to, to stand in the presence of God and behold his glory, they, listen, they, they will be so richly satisfied. Why? What was that song we just sang from Psalm 84? The psalmist said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. Has, has this, have you realized this yet? Because God is beautiful. When someone talks to you about God and your need for God, and don't, don't hear this as some, oh, here we go, I'm getting nagged again. No, no, listen. Mm. Someone's offering you joy beyond what you can ever comprehend. So the reason the tabernacle is so, the reason it costs so much money, the reason all the gold in the land, the reason the best artisans, the reason it was beautiful because God wanted his people to know God himself is 
the one thing you need. He's also the one thing you can't have. All right, so the tabernacle communicates to us by its, by its very design that God is beautiful. It also, the second thing, it communicates that God is holy. And when we say God is holy, we mean that God's righteousness is so perfect. He is so unflinching in his goodness and purity that people who have any sin at all staining their life, selfish people, cowardly people, unkind people, dishonest people, cannot come into his presence. He is holy. And the tabernacle was designed to communicate that. If, if you ever see, um, you got some cool stuff on YouTube that kind of show the way the tabernacle was, all right? It, it just, if you ever look at the layout of the tabernacle, the tabernacle was designed basically to be a series of concentric barricades, all right? And as you move from the outside to the inside, each barricade limits the access of people to the presence of God. So here's, here's what the, the tabernacle was like. Um, there was a courtyard to the tabernacle, this, um, this sort of a fence made of white linen cloth that you, could not, you couldn't see through it, you couldn't see over it. It's like seven and a half feet high, and it was 75 feet wide, like 150 feet long, so one and a half basketball courts, all right? This huge barricade so that you can't see anything inside there. There was one and only one entrance to the courtyard, so they could control who could come in. Every Israelite, man or woman, was welcome to come into the courtyard, but you would not be allowed in if, for some reason, you were ritually impure. So if there was a, there's all these lists of things that could disqualify you. If you've touched a dead body, if you have certain kind of physical condition, if you have different illnesses, if, you, if you've eaten the wrong food, if you've touched the wrong substance, all these different things, some of them might not even be your fault, but if you didn't qualify, you can't come in. Now, if you were pure, ritually pure, and you wanted to come in, you could come in, but don't, listen, don't just wander in like, here I am. You better bring a sacrifice with you. Without a sacrifice, you are not allowed in. God, God, God had said in uh, Exodus 30, verse 20, no one is to appear before me empty-handed. So if you're pure, if you have a sacrifice, you're allowed to come in. And when you get into the courtyard, you'll see way down at the far end a tent. It was a spectacularly beautiful tent made of this brilliant colored cloth embroidered with, with um images of angelic beings, but you would never see it. The only people to see it would be the Levites when they set it up, and then after they set it up, they would cover it completely with these goat skins, brown leather skins. That's all you'd ever see. You'd never see. The beauty was hidden from your eyes. You could walk up near to the, the tent, but you wouldn't get too near. No, you, you would not be allowed. The only people allowed inside the tent would be the priests, the, the, the male descendants between certain ages of one particular family in Israel, the, the sons of Aaron. They would be allowed into the tent, but even they could not come into the tent unless they first washed in the basin. If they washed in the basin, if they didn't, they might die. When the priests got in past that barricade into the tent, they noticed that there was another barricade. There was a separate chamber at the back of the tent 
it was the inner sanctum. It was the holy of holies. Even the priest could not go in there. The only, one, the only person who could ever go into the holy of holies was the high priest. He could only go in there one time every year, the day God had designated. And before going in there, he, have, he had to uh, slaughter a bull just to cover his own sins. All right, so you see, you see the, the layout, the design of this, these concentric barricades, one after another. And with each barricade, um, it becomes more and more and more restrictive until it reaches the point that other than this one guy once a year, listen, all this beauty, no one could go to it. No one could go into this beautiful place. Now, what, what this was communicating is that God, God is holy. Impure people cannot come, come into his presence. He's, he's beautiful. He's the one thing we need, but he's, he's holy. He's the, because of our sin, he's the one thing we can't have. A lot, a lot of people have observed that the, the, design, the particular design of the tabernacle was probably reminiscent for the people of made them think of the Garden of Eden. They knew the story of the garden. What happened in Eden, this beautiful place? Well, the moment that our parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, they were kicked out. They couldn't come back again. And the, the, the Bible is a story of all of us, their descendants, all our lives. We're, we're born with this sinful, broken nature that keeps us. It keeps us from really knowing and coming, coming into the presence of this beautiful God. That sinful people cannot be accepted by God. Now, there are some people who don't believe that. They might believe it, you know, technically, but then they'll say, yeah, all right. I know I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect, but I'll tell you the truth. I'm not as bad as some other people I know, which I won't name. Have you met my brother-in-law? I mean, I'm just, I'm, you know, I, I'm not as bad as others, so, you know, I think it'll be okay. Or they'll say, okay, I'm a sinner. I've made some mistakes, but I think I can improve. I can try harder. I can work on myself. It's going to be okay. Listen, you can think those things if you want to, but do you know what the Bible says? The Bible, the Bible says in Psalm 5, verse 4, it says, The Lord is not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With him, evil people are not welcome. Habakkuk 1, verse 13 says, God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Romans 3, verse 23 says, All all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means me, means you. And Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. So the, the, the design of the tag, this was so beautifully designed to communicate basically the problem that the Bible presents us with, the great human dilemma. The one, thing we, the one thing we were created for is to know the beauty of God. And yet, because of our sin, we can't get there. So, what are we to do about this? Well, there's something else that the tabernacle teaches us. God is beautiful. God is holy. Something else it teaches us. God is love. Infinite love, unstoppable love, love that can, it's, it's, it's deeper than the depths of our sin, love that nothing can stop it. He's, 
He has love. So remember I said at the, the back of the tent, which was at the back of the courtyard, there was the, the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies. No one could go in there, just the high priest once a year. In, that, in the Holy of Holies, there was a, a large wooden box that was covered completely on all sides with gold. On top of the box, there was this very elaborate, very heavy golden lid that had the forms of two angels on it. That box was called the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant were the two stone tablets, just like that up there, right, on which God had written the Ten Commandments. So think, think about this. At the very heart of the very center of this focal point of God's presence among his people was God's law. You know what God's law did for the people of Israel? Same thing it does for me. God's law condemned them. God's law just kind of pointed a finger at each and every one of them and says, you've broken this law. You've sinned. You've been dishonest. You've been unkind. You've been impure. You've been self-centered. You, you have broken the law. You cannot come in here. Imagine how that must have felt for ancient Israelites to be thinking at the, very, at the very center of this most beautiful place that symbolizes the one thing I need, which is to know God and his glory, is a law that condemns me. Tells me I can't go there. Well, as I said, once a year, the high priest was commanded by God to go into the Holy of Holies. He was to take the blood of an animal that he had sacrificed. He was to sprinkle that blood on top of the cover of this box, the Ark of the Covenant. You say, well, that's weird. Okay. Yeah, it's, it is maybe, but it, it's, it's communicating something symbolically. And what it was saying to the ancient Israelites, they were sitting there thinking, at the center of the focal point of the presence of this beautiful God, there is a law that condemns me. But now, when God looks down on that ark, he doesn't see the law anymore. He just sees the blood. It's covered the blood. My condemnation is hidden from God's eyes. He doesn't see it anymore. I would be welcome there. Now you say, how does this point to the love of God? Well, the, the New Testament tells us, man, when you, I'll be honest, I read the tabernacle stuff, it just seems so foreign, so weird. Why was God doing this? The whole purpose of this elaborate ritual of worship, the, the whole purpose of this tabernacle, New Testament says it had one reason only, to point us to Jesus. The, the great human dilemma, the fact that the one thing we need is God, and the one thing we can't have is God because of our sin, that great dilemma is forever solved through what God did through his son, Jesus Christ. In the Listen. In the person of his son, Jesus Christ, God came down and he sprinkled his own blood over the law that condemns you, the law that condemns me. And the invitation of the gospel is for anyone. And I, listen, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how you failed. I don't care how many times. 
anyone who trusts in what Jesus did on the cross, God just says, I don't see your condemnation anymore. I don't see your sin anymore. It's covered. The word atonement means to cover. It's covered, God says, with my own blood. I atoned for it. I wonder how those ancient Israelites felt the day that the priest went into the, into the Holy of Holies and came out, and they just thought, oh, man, all my sin's covered. Have you, let me ask you, this is a very personal question. Have, have you ever, in a, in a genuine way, admitted your sin to God and told him that you're going to trust his son, Jesus? If you, if you haven't done that, you could do that today. And if you have done that, listen to me. You could have that same joy as the ancient Israelites even deeper. Just say, you know what? God doesn't see my sin anymore. He doesn't see my failure anymore. There, there's, he doesn't look down and see this, these Ten Commandments that condemn me because it just... They've been covered with the blood of his own son. That's love. First, first John 4 verse 10 says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, the end of the passage, I'll close with this. I love how it ends. They set up the tabernacle and they're thinking, this is going to be great. Let's see what happens. And, and the, it says in verse 39, it says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then it says, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. For the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This descent of uh, some kind of visible uh, manifestation of God's glory was just God's way of saying, you know that problem? Your sin keeps you from my presence. Problem solved. Problem solved. That's what God has done for us through Jesus. You, 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 you've heard that in the, in the Gospels it says that when Jesus died on the cross, right as, as he breathed his last breath, by that time they, know, they didn't have the tabernacle anymore. They didn't have a portable temple. They had a permanent temple. Same basic layout. And, and the Holy of Holies was separated from everyone by this huge, huge curtain. And the, and the Gospels say the moment Jesus breathed his last breath, what happened to that curtain? Ripped in half from top to bottom as if God was saying, no more barrier. Nothing keeping you from me anymore. Jesus took care of it. Come on in. I would just invite you today, if you've never come into the presence of God by trusting in Jesus, right? Today. Listen, why would you wait any longer for this? Today. He's waiting for you. So the passage ends with this. It says that, that uh, this cloud would settle on the, on the temple, uh, on the tabernacle, and whenever the cloud would move, the people would follow it, right? Which is important. It doesn't say that the cloud followed them wherever they went. It says that they followed the cloud wherever it went, which means what? Which means they were just trusting God. Are you trusting God? I, 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 I guess they're just saying to themselves, this God who is so beautiful, I mean, this tabernacle begins to portray his beauty, and he's so holy we can't get in there, and yet he loves us anyway, and he forgives our sins, and he wants, he really wants to be with us. Man, if he's that loving, let's just follow him wherever he goes. And I think that's one way to explain what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you're trusting God's love for you in Jesus Christ so much. 
you'll just follow wherever he goes, right? You're trusting him. I hope you are trusting him. If not, as I said, today, he's calling you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you were not content to have us separated from you because of our sin. That you went to all this effort to not just build a tabernacle, but you moved heaven and earth to send your son, Jesus, so that he could die for us, so that you could be with us, so that we could be accepted by you. May we never stop to rejoice in this. In Christ's name, amen.